0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 117. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this episode on May 24th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that is off the timeline of the history of the Americans. Really our way of signaling that the episode need not be listened to in sequence. Before we jump in, a quick announcement. We will do the aforementioned meetup for Austin and other Central Texas area listeners at 5.30 p.m. on Thursday, June 1st, 2023 at Better Half Coffee and Cocktails, 406 Wall Street, Austin, Texas. For those of you who don't know it, Better Half is attached to a brewery, so in addition to a full bar, there's a pretty good beer selection. It's essentially on 5th Street, about a mile east of Mopac. You can't make reservations there, but as I did in Washington, I'll plan to get there early and turf out a couple of picnic tables. Please let me know by email or direct message if you think you can make it. I hope you can. And, you know, don't worry if you can't get there at 5.30. I'm sure we'll be there until 7.30 or 8 at least, as we were in Washington. Okay, I normally don't give trigger warnings at the beginning of an episode, but in this one, I'm going to say some nice things about Harvard. I'll try not to overdo it, but forewarned is forearmed. Memorial Day is, or at least used to be, an occasion for giving speeches. Many of them have been very moving. Some of them were moving when given, but ring out of time for those of us who read them in our own day. Some of them are interesting because they offer us a glimpse of how an earlier generation confronted its own defining challenge. A speech of this last sort is the subject of this episode. On May 30th, Memorial Day, 1895, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., a Harvard man and then a justice on the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, delivered an address to the graduating class of 1895 in Cambridge. The speech, known as the Soldier's Faith, is in and of itself fascinating substantively and also for its indirect effects. Regarding those, Theodore Roosevelt, another Harvard man, read the speech some seven years later and determined to appoint Holmes to the Supreme Court on account of it. Holmes, as most of you no doubt know, would go on to be one of our greatest and most consequential justices, so the giving of the speech would, in its way, change the course of American constitutional law. Strange as it might seem today, if one were to deliver a speech centered on soldiering in America of 1895, Harvard would have been a good place to do it. Stephen Budyansky, in his recent biography of Holmes, wrote about the contributions of Harvard's alumni, including Holmes, to the Union cause in the American Civil War. Quote, Of the 578 Harvard men who served in infantry units in the Union Army during the Civil War, 124 died and 86 were seriously wounded, a staggering 36% casualty rate. The regiment many of those Harvard graduates would join, the 20th Massachusetts, saw more men killed than only four other regiments in the entire Union Army. At Gettysburg, more than half the Harvard Regiment, in quotes, including 10 of its 13 officers, were killed or wounded. By then it had earned another nickname, the Bloody 20th. Back to me, Holmes himself would be wounded three times, twice within an inch of his life. In the catastrophic Union defeat at Ball's Bluff in Northern Virginia in October 1861, a musket ball would pass through Holmes' abdomen left to right to emerge from his body into his coat. Amazingly, he would suffer no damage to critical organs, and after months of recuperation would rejoin the fight. Less than a year later, he would find himself at Antietam, on September 17, 1862, which is still the bloodiest single day in the history of the United States Army. This time a bullet tore through his neck, again missing all the important stuff in that part of his body. Again he went back. Then on May 3, 1863, his heel was shattered by shrapnel from Confederate artillery in the attack at Fredericksburg. While not life-threatening, the heel took a long time To heal, and thereafter he could not march for days on end. Still, he returned, this time as a cavalry officer in the Wilderness Campaign of 1864. He mustered out at the end of 1864 and returned to study at Harvard Law School. Point is, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Harvard man, distinguished legal scholar and jurist even in 1895, and thrice wounded hero of the Union, could speak about the soldier's faith with unimpeachable credibility to young Harvard men just entering the world at the climax of the American Gilded Age. On Memorial Day 1895, Holmes was 54 years old. To get some sense of how he must have been experienced on that day, let's go to a description of the Holmes of 1916 when he was 75 years old and a justice on the United States Supreme Court. Quoting Budyansky again. Every afternoon when the court was in session, the justice would walk back from the Capitol to his brownstone at 1720 I Street, just west of the White House. Impeccably dressed in the manner of the perfect Edwardian gentleman, he cut a commanding figure as he briskly strode his daily two miles home. His six-foot-three frame held erect like the soldier he had once been. Magnificent white mustache like a cavalry colonel's. Always turned out in a formal top hat, high-wing collar, cutaway coat, and striped trousers purchased from the best shops in London on his frequent visits there. He was one of those rare men who'd actually grown more handsome with age, possessed of a full head of white hair, blue eyes that shone with undiminished intenseness beneath bushy brows, and a beautiful baritone voice that carried the now vanished patrician mid-Atlantic accent that ordinary Americans would become familiar with from Franklin D. Roosevelt's fireside chats. Back to me. With that image well in mind... Six-foot-three, baritone voice, mid-Atlantic accent. Let's go to the speech itself, which I'll read with some annotating commentary along the way, which I hope you will be able to distinguish by my own change in tone. Quoting now, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. on Memorial Day. Any day in Washington Street, when the throng is greatest and busiest, you may see a blind man playing a flute I suppose that someone hears him. Perhaps also my pipe may reach the heart of some passer in the crowd. I once heard a man say, Where Vanderbilt sits, there is the head of the table. I teach my son to be rich. He said what many think. For although the generation born about 1840 and now governing the world has fought two at least of the greatest wars in history... Holmes obviously refers here to the American Civil War and probably to the Franco-Prussian War. And as witnessed others, war is out of fashion. And the man who commands attention of his fellows is the man of wealth. Commerce is the great power. The aspirations of the world are those of commerce. Moralists and philosophers, following its lead, declare that war is wicked foolish and soon to disappear. The society for which many philanthropists, labor reformers and men of fashion unite in longing, is one in which they may be comfortable and may shine without much trouble or any danger. The unfortunately growing hatred of the poor for the rich seems to me at least on the belief that money is the main thing, a belief in which the poor have been encouraged by the rich. "'more than on any other grievance. "'Most of my hearers would rather that their daughters or sisters "'should marry a man of one of the great rich families "'rather than a regular army officer "'where he is beautiful, brave, and gifted as Sir William Napier.' Napier was a famous British soldier of the early 19th century, hero of the Peninsula War and military historian. His statue stands in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Holmes is saying that men of the gilded age would prefer their daughters marry into a rich family than even a soldier as accomplished and learned as Napier. Back to Holmes, whose description of American attitudes at the climax of the Gilded Age sounds a lot like those of the last 30 or so years. I have heard the question asked whether our war was worth fighting after all. There are many, poor and rich, who think that love of country is an old wives' tale, to be replaced by interest in a labor union, or under the name of cosmopolitanism, by a rootless self-seeking search for a place where the most enjoyment may be had at the least cost. Meantime, we have learned the doctrine that evil means pain, and the revolt against pain in all its forms has grown more and more marked. From societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals up to socialism, we express in numberless ways the notion that suffering is a wrong which can be and ought to be prevented, and a whole literature of sympathy is sprung into being, which points out in story and in verse how hard it is to be wounded in the battle of life, how terrible, how unjust it is that anyone should fail. You know, one wonders if Holmes had a time machine, or maybe the things we believe are new to us are not so new after all. Back to Holmes. Holmes. Even science has had its part in the tendencies which we observe. It has shaken established religion in the minds of very many. It has pursued analysis until at least this thrilling world of colors and passions and sounds has seemed fatally to resolve itself into one vast network of vibrations endlessly weaving an aimless web and the rainbow flush of cathedral windows, which once to enraptured eyes appeared the very smile of God, fades slowly out into the pale irony of the world. And yet from vast orchestras still comes the music of mighty symphonies. Our painters even now are spreading along the walls of our library glowing symbols of mysteries still real and the hardly silenced cannon of the East, I suspect this is a reference to the first Sino-Japanese war which had just ended, proclaim once more that combat and pain still are the portion of man. For my own part, I believe that the struggle for life is the order of the world, at which it is vain to repine. I can imagine the burden changed in the way it is to be born, but I cannot imagine that it ever will be lifted from men's backs. Now pay special attention to this next sentence. I can imagine a future in which science shall have passed from the combative to the dogmatic stage and shall have gained such Catholic acceptance that it shall take control of life and condemn at once with instant execution what now is left for nature to destroy. Whoa, Wendell had a crystal ball with that one. Back to him. But we are far from such a future, and we cannot stop to amuse or to terrify ourselves with dreams. Now at least, and perhaps as long as man dwells upon the globe, his destiny is battle, and he has to take the chances of war. If it is our business to fight... The book for the Army is a war song, not a hospital sketch. It's not well for soldiers to think much about wounds. Sooner or later, we shall fall, but meantime, it is for us to fix our eyes upon the point to be stormed and to get there if we can. Behind every scheme to make the world over lies the question what kind of world do you want? The ideals of the past for men have been drawn from war as those for women have been drawn from motherhood. For all our prophecies, I doubt if we are ready to give up our inheritance. Who is there who would not like to be thought a gentleman? Yet what has that name been built on but the soldier's choice of honor rather than life? To be a soldier or descended from soldiers in time of peace to be ready to give one's life rather than suffer disgrace. That is what the word has meant. And if we try to claim it at less cost than a splendid carelessness for life, we are trying to steal the goodwill without the responsibilities of the place. Here Holmes admonishes all of us who might think that ultimate male status can come in a simpler, risk-free way. As a male of a certain age who never volunteered for the risk of battle, I admit that it stings a bit. We hear this part of the speech is archaic, but it also protects our ego to dismiss Holmes because he shames us. Back to Holmes, who again foresees the future, at least to some degree. We will not dispute about tastes. The man of the future may want something different. But who of us could endure a world, although cut up into five-acre lots, and having no man upon it who is not well-fed and well-housed, without the divine folly of honor, without the senseless passion for knowledge outreaching the flaming bounds of the possible, without ideals, the essence of which is that they can never be achieved? I do not know what is true. I do not know the meaning of the universe. But in the midst of doubt and the collapse of creeds there's one thing I do not doubt that no man who lives in the same world with most of us can doubt and that is that the faith is true and adorable which leads a soldier to throw away his life in obedience to a blindly accepted duty in a cause which he little understands in a plan of campaign of which he has little notion under tactics of which he does not see the use. It is, again, superficially easy to dismiss Holmes here in his assertion that the faith is true and adorable, which leads a soldier to throw away his life in obedience to a blindly accepted duty. Perhaps we moderns no longer believe that. But is that actually the case? Is it true we no longer find heroic sacrifice true and adorable? If you think so, consider that heroic sacrifice and the cause of duty is the heart of dozens of Hollywood hit movies that thrill the hearts of even cynically postmodern audiences. If you don't believe me, you might re-watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy with that in mind, or several of the better Star Trek movies, or any number of war films. Holmes is speaking bluntly about a soldier's faith in a way that clashes with today's sensibilities but, it seems to me, still touches our deepest emotions in spite of those sensibilities. This passage of Holmes' speech, the soldier who would throw away his life in obedience to a blindly accepted duty in a cause which he little understands, in a plan of campaign of which he has little notion, under tactics of which he does not see the use, refers to Henry Livermore Abbott Abbott was one of Holmes's great friends during the war, a repeatedly and profoundly heroic soldier for the Union, while deeply skeptical of the abolitionist cause and, until Grant, the competence of the Union Army's commanders. He died on May 5, 1864, at the Battle of the Wilderness. Here's how Budiansky described Abbott's final moment. Quote, In the fiercest fighting earlier in the day, The 20th had been ordered to mount a desperate charge to shore up the Union position in the face of a powerful counterattack by Longstreet. A third of the regiment fell on the first hail of Confederate bullets. Abbott, leading the charge, ordered his men to lie down and continue firing. He alone remained standing, walking the line as enemy bullets literally rippled the edge of his clothing. This was so madly courageous that it crossed over the line to suicidal. A minute later, he was struck in the abdomen and died a few hours later. Holmes learned the news the next day. The soldier's faith, it turned out, was in part a tribute to Henry Livermore Abbott. Now back to Holmes. Most men who know battle know the cynic force with which the thoughts of common sense will assail them in times of stress but they know that in their greatest moments, faith has trampled those thoughts underfoot. If you wait in line, suppose on Tremont Street Mall, ordered simply to wait and do nothing, and have watched the enemy bring their guns to bear upon you down a gentle slope like that of Beacon Street, have seen the puff of firing, have felt the burst of the spherical case shot as it came toward you have heard and seen the shrieking fragments go tearing through your company, and have known that the next or the next shot carries your fate. If you have advanced in line and have seen ahead of you the spot you must pass where the rifle bullets are striking, if you have ridden at night at a walk toward the blue line of fire at the deadly angle of Spotsylvania, where for twenty-four hours the soldiers were fighting on the two sides of an earthwork, and in the morning the dead and dying lay piled in a row six deep, and as you rode you heard the bullets splashing in the mud and earth about you. If you have been in the picket line at night in a black and unknown road, having heard the splat of the bullets upon the trees, and as you moved have felt your foot slip upon a dead man's body, If you have had a a blind fierce gallop against the enemy with your blood up and a pace that left no time for fear, if in short as some I hope many who hear me have known, you have known the vicissitudes of terror and triumph in war. You know that there is such a thing as the faith I spoke of. You know your own weakness and are modest. But you know that man has in him that unspeakable somewhat which makes him capable of miracle, able to lift himself by the might of his own soul, unaided, able to face annihilation for a blind belief. Back to me. The dead angle of Spotsylvania. And Holmes' description of the bloody aftermath refers to May 12, 1864, at the bloody angle, where Confederate trench lines came together at a right angle, In the middle of the battle, Holmes, by that time in the war, a fairly senior officer, was sent to deploy a New Jersey regiment into the fight. The blind, fierce gallop refers to a moment when Holmes, now mounted because of having taken shrapnel to his heel, barely escaped a Confederate patrol. Budyansky again, quote, Late on the afternoon of May 30th, General Wright handed Holmes an urgent dispatch for General David Russell, whose division was ahead leading a large Union probe toward Confederate lines and, quote, told me not to spare my horse. The Sixth Corps had its headquarters west of Hanover Courthouse near the town of Studley at the Jones House, a former home of Patrick Henry, About a mile north of the plantation, where the farm lane turned into a road, a scout came tearing back to warn him he had just been shot at. Holmes decided he must go on, pushed his horse into a gallop, and ran directly into a line of 20 horsemen who called on him to surrender. At first thinking it was a mistake and that they were friends, he started to pull up, but then saw the gray uniforms, and instead spurred his horse right for them. Holmes started to draw his saber, but the thought then crossed his mind that as cavalrymen, the Confederates were probably much better swordsmen than he. He pulled his pistol instead. One rider came alongside and was unslinging his carbine when Holmes clapped his pistol to his breast and pulled the trigger, but the gun misfired. Ducking down on the side of his horse, he, quote, did a Comanche, and galloped through the line unscathed our constitutional jurisprudence certainly had its share of close calls. Back to Holmes. From the beginning, to us, children of the North, life has seemed a place hung about by dark mists, out of which comes the pale shine of dragon scales and the cry of fighting men and the sound of swords. Beowulf, Milton, Durer, Rembrandt, Schopenhauer, Turner, Tennyson... From the first war song of the race to the stall-fed poetry of modern English drawing rooms, all have had the same vision, and all have had a glimpse of a light to be followed. The end of worldly life awaits us. Let him who may gain honor ere death. That is best for a warrior when he is dead. So spoke Beowulf a thousand years ago. When I went to the war, I thought that soldiers were old men. I remembered a picture of the revolutionary soldier, which some of you may have seen, representing a white-haired man with his flintlock slung across his back. I remembered one or two examples of revolutionary soldiers whom I have met, and I took no account of the lapse of time. It was not long after, in winter quarters, as I was listening to some of the sentimental songs in vogue such as, Farewell Mother, You May Never See Your Darling Boy Again, that it came over me that the army was made up of what I should now call very young men. I dare say that my illusion has been shared by some of those now present, as they have looked at us upon whose heads the white shadows have begun to fall. But the truth is that war is the business of youth in early middle age. You who called this assemblage together, not we, would be the soldiers of another war if we should have one, and it is for you to hear the bugles as once we heard them beneath the morning stars. The song that Holmes quoted, apparently incorrectly, by the way, was a popular tune during the Civil War called Just Before the Battle Mother by George Root. I found a modern recording of it online and we'll put a link in the episode notes on the website thehistoryoftheamericans.com Now back to Holmes who read an excerpt of the Song of the Sword by the rising late 19th century English poet William Ernest Henley who is a little younger than Holmes quote For you it is that now is sung the song of the sword the war thing the comrade Father of honor, the giver of kingship, the fame smith, the songmaster, priest, saith the Lord, of his marriage with victory, clear singing, clean slicing, sweet spoken, soft finishing, making death beautiful, life but a coin, to be staked in a pastime whose playing is more than the transfer of being. Ark, anarch, chief builder, prince and evangelist, I am the will of God. I am the sword. War, when you are at it, is horrible and dull. It is only when time has passed that you see that its message was divine. I hope it may be long before we are called again to sit at that master's feet. But some teacher of the kind we all need, in this snug, over-safe corner of the world, we need it that we may realize that our comfortable routine is no eternal necessity of things, but merely a little space of calm in the midst of the tempestuous, untamed streaming of the world, and in order that we may be ready for danger. We need it in this time of individualist negations, with its literature of French and American humor revolting at discipline loving fleshpots, and denying that anything is worthy of reverence, in order that we may remember all that buffoons forget. We need it everywhere and at all times, for high and dangerous action teaches us to believe as right beyond dispute, things for which our doubting minds are slow to find words of proof. Out of heroism grows faith in the worth of heroism, The proof comes later, and even may never come. Therefore, I rejoice at every dangerous sport which I see pursued. The students at Heidelberg, with their sword-slashed faces, inspire me with sincere respect. I gaze with delight upon our polo players. If once in a while, in our rough riding, a neck is broken, I regard it not as a waste, but as a price well paid for the breeding of a race fit for headship and command. Holmes, no doubt, would have approved of kids playing with fireworks and lawn darts. His class experiences probably led him to suggest fencing and polo instead of football and boxing, but his point is not hard to understand. Now back to Holmes. We do not save our traditions in our country. The regiments whose battle flags were not large enough to hold the names of the battles they had fought vanished with the surrender of lee although their memories inherited would have made heroes for a century it is the more necessary to learn the lesson afresh from perils newly sought and perhaps it is not vain for us to tell the new generation what we learned in our day and what we still believe that the joy of life is living is to put out all one's powers as far as they will go that the measure of power is obstacles overcome to ride boldly at what is in front of you, be it fence or enemy, to pray not for comfort but for combat, to keep the soldier's faith against the doubts of civil life more besetting and harder to overcome than all the misgivings of the battlefield, and to remember that duty is not to be proved in the evil day but then to be obeyed unquestioning, To love glory more than the temptations of wallowing ease. But to know that one's final judge and only rival is oneself. With all our failures in act and thought, these things we learned from noble enemies in Virginia, or Georgia, or on the Mississippi, 30 years ago. These things we believe to be true. The reference to noble enemies in Virginia, or Georgia, or on the Mississippi is not easy for some today to hear, and we'll return to that briefly after we get through the last bit of his speech. Now he quotes Elizabethan poet Edmund Spencer, who wrote in his epic The Fairy Queen, Life is not lost, said she, for which is bought endless renown. We learned also, and we still believe, that love of country is not yet an idle name more spencer dear country O oh, how dearly dear ought thy remembrance in perpetual band be to thy foster child that from thy hand did common breath and nurture receive how brutish is it not to understand how much to her we owe that all us gave that much to her we owe that all us gave that gave unto us all whatever good we have. As for us, our days of combat are over. Our swords are rust. Our guns will thunder no more. The vultures that once wheeled over our heads must be buried with their prey. Whatever of glory must be won in the council or the closet, never again in the field. I do not repine. We have shared the incommunicable experience of war, We have felt, we still feel, the passion of life to its top. Back to me. That's it. One of the most consequential Memorial Day speeches ever given, and not because it was also the occasion of Harvard's commencement, or even because Theodore Roosevelt would take note of it years later when he had an open slot on the SCOTUS. Holmes was both tapping into and shaping an American nationalism that would reach its fullest flower in the Spanish-American War, the first shots of which would be fired less than three years later. He was reviving a curious nostalgia for the Civil War that spread across sectional lines in the two decades before World War I and which corresponded with the aging and then dying off of the Civil War veterans. The veterans of the war, North and South, shared an experience that no generation before or since could truly understand, and that bound them together almost whatever their opinions about the justice or injustice of the war itself. John Pettigrew, who was professor of history at Lehigh University, wrote a paper in 1996 titled, The Soldier's Faith, Turn-of-the-Century Memory of the Civil War and the Emergence of Modern American Nationalism. Professor Pettigrew surveyed Memorial Day's speeches from the 20 years before World War I, roughly speaking, of which the Soldier's Faith was the most acclaimed, probably as much because of the eventual fame of its author as its inherent eloquence. Pediger's analysis is lengthy and interesting and mostly about other nationalistic literature of the time, so we'll skip most of that in favor of finishing this episode with a couple of paragraphs that capture his broad theme. Quote, The predominant theme in turn-of-the-century Memorial Day addresses was one of national conciliation. Even though speakers recalled the causes of the war most emphasized, as Boston's Mayor Palmer put it, sentiments common to the whole country. For Palmer, the fundamental principles of democracy and Republican government provided traditions of which both sections of the country could be proud. Generally, turn-of-the-century Memorial Day speakers lauded a range of values and ideals revolving around the American nation itself, its existence, its health, and above all, its union. This protean concept of nationalism became a principal basis for military obligation in late 19th and early 20th century America. Memorial Day orators explained the death and destruction of the Civil War as the necessary result of political difference, in no way reflective of hatred or animosity between the men who fought and killed each other. Widespread respect and appreciation for the courage and sacrifice of Union and Confederate soldiers contributed to American nationalism, a sentiment that included a sense of duty more tangible and powerful than if the Civil War had not been fought. Memory of the war became a historical overlay at a turn-of-the-century conceptions of citizenship, magnifying the importance of protecting and serving— that to which so many other Americans had given their lives. Back to me. To poke the wasp nest a bit, it's become fashionable in recent years to look at the reconciliation of North and South in the generations after the Civil War as an ugly expression of white supremacy. And to some degree, it surely was. That will be the subject of another episode, probably far into the future. At the same time... The Memorial Day speakers of that era, many of them Union veterans, who had paid an awful price for the Union, supported that reconciliation not because they were white supremacists, but precisely because they had fought for the Union, and because they shared the transforming and traumatizing experience of that war only with the veterans of the Confederacy. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website. And follow me on Twitter to stay up-to-date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time.